There are dire warnings that New South Wales will be hit by increasingly extreme weather. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. It's the rate that's a great concern. And what do you put that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say the will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello and welcome to Climactic, a podcast on the Climactic Collective, a group of independent podcasters from across the range of the climate communities of Australia and New Zealand. Every week on Climactic, rain or shine, we either produce or feature an episode of a climate-engaged podcast. This could be from one of the shows on the Climactic Collective or beyond, and you'll always find a link to the show we're featuring at the top of the show notes. My name is Mark, and I'm the publisher of the Climactic Collective and of this show. And if you ever have any questions, I'm always reachable at hello at climactic.fm. I'm in Tamaki Makoto, Auckland, New Zealand, Aotearoa and I pay my respects to the iwi of Tamaki Makoto and acknowledge their shared sovereignty over this land as enshrined in Tetsuriti, the Treaty of Waitangi. Welcome back to 2022. Today's episode is from a quite different show than what we normally feature on Climactic. But if you're listening to this, if you're climate-engaged and climate-concerned, you're worried about all the ways that climate change can affect geopolitics, and conflict around the world. You know that our more energetic world, our hotter world, is sadly also more prone to violence. And the show that this episode is from, The Red Line, is all about the conflicts or potential conflicts brewing around the world in order to help you be aware of, understand, and ultimately to be a citizen of whatever country you're in and help avoid these conflicts. Later this year, the team behind the show is going to be doing some amazing work around climate and how climate change is fueling or paving the way to conflict. I hope you enjoyed this episode. It's one of my personal favorite episodes of one of my favorite shows, and I'm really proud to be a very small part of it myself. So, as always, please reach out to me if you have any suggestions for climate-engaged shows you think we should feature here on Climactic, and I hope you have a great climate-engaged week. And we'll be back this time next week with another episode. This is The Red Line, where we interview three geopolitical experts on one big issue shaping news both here and overseas. And I'm your host, Michael Hilliard. A couple of years ago, I sat down for a meal with a friend of mine who specializes in international law and is currently working at the UN. And of course, one bottle, then two bottles, and three bottles of wine disappear. And the questions all start out simple. Like, who is liable for a parking ticket when a diplomat parks in a handicapped spot? To questions around what the citizenship of a child would be being born in the UN building. But to this day, it is still one of the most interesting conversations I've ever had. Because then we started getting into more complicated topics. Leading up to the conversation about private militaries. By the time we got to this point, we are three bottles of wine deep. And my friend had answers for almost everything. But when it came to private militaries... He exclaimed he had discussed it with colleagues and there really is not much precedent to go off. So I posed him a scenario. If I were to work for a multinational oil company, for the sake of the argument ExxonMobil, 
I wanted to boost my shares. What stops me hiring a military contractor with dark money to sail up to a competitor's oil rig and use a rocket or drone strike to blow it up? He looked perplexed and took a sip from his wine and then confirmed, well, of course that's illegal and the oil company would sue you for the damages. But then I asked, who would you serve with a lawsuit? The man who fired the rocket? Well, he's probably long gone and living in Colombia by now. Good luck finding him. What about the man who sold him the rocket? Rockets are pretty easy to get these days and change hands frequently. It would be nearly impossible to prove it came from one particular source. What about the company who employed him? Well, PMCs are likely registered in the UAE or a small Caribbean island. Countries that have no laws in the books against this and have vested interests to not press charges. What about if they sue me for paying for the attack? Well, it's not hard to route money through a few countries and banks who would simply refuse to continue the investigation. A single transaction can be quite difficult to tie to someone, particularly if they know what they're doing. And this stumped him. That's the conundrum of PMCs, because there is no precedent around them. Because nobody wants a precedent around them. As many countries today use them as shock forces or simply to do the dirty work they don't want to do. You can't send an Italian army to invade a Somali village, retake your goods and kill the pirates once and for all. That's an invasion of a sovereign nation by another nation. It's unthinkable. You can though hire a private company that will hire private contractors that will get the same job done and none of the blame comes back to you. Just as messy, just as bloody, none of the blowback. At least for now. So if there are very little laws around this industry on the ground, there's even less laws around this industry in the ocean. For the most part, no one is even completely sure who would even be charged for a crime like this. And with much more players entering this space, how chaotic is this about to become? Well, to answer the question my friend couldn't, we turn to our first guest. Part 1. Soldiers of Fortune yeah, so private military services are not just landbound; they are also on the sea, um, and they provide, for example, security to you know oil tankers and freighters who go through pirate-infested waters, like the Gulf of Guinea in Africa, the Gulf of Aden, the Malacca Straits, um, and it's it's been an industry that's been around for about ten years. Sean McFate is a former private military contractor, senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Professor of Strategy at Georgetown University and the National Defense University, and the author of a number of fantastic books around the issue of PMCs. We are glad to have Sean back on the show today. Volumes of ink have been spilled on the question of what's the difference between a private military company and a straight-up mercenary. And the truth is, in my experience, having been in that world, um, is that the line is really blurry. I mean, if you could do one, you can do the other. It depends on the company or the individual's uh, decisions and market circumstances. Uh, in the case of PMCs at sea, um, then what they are is they're, they're, they're civilians who deploy force in a way that perhaps a, a national coast guard would. And so they are not, they are not, they are non-state actors. And they are transactional. They, they work for money. They work for profit. And so we're seeing the private military companies, some would say mercenaries, or some might even say privateers, uh, uh, increasingly in the oceans. 
So what are the rules of engagement when it comes to PMCs? You know, a US naval boat can't go chasing pirates into Vietnamese territorial waters without the permission of the Vietnamese government, but PMCs are technically civilians. So what are the engagement rules around PMCs? Can they go chasing enemies into sovereign waters? Yeah, it's, it depends on who the client is. So if the client's the Vietnamese government, then you're you're basically acting as the Vietnamese government's um, you know, Coast Guard or an auxiliary to the Coast Guard. And that happens especially when you have illegal fishing or poaching. So, for example, Chinese fishing boats like these ocean trawlers go off of you know the coast of Africa and will and and just you know scoop up as much fish as they can and some of these states like Liberia and others are pretty powerless to stop it uh, and they don't have a coast guard of their own or one that's very weak so what they would what they could do um, is they could they could contract one of these companies to act as their coast guard in which case they are I guess you know legal um, but you you also have questions like this. You have, just say you're like a, a big shipping company like Maersk, and I'm making this up hypothetically. But you know you've had um, uh, one of your container uh, a container ship just got taken over by pirates, and they want you know five million dollars ransom, and you have to pay it, and then you know that's a pain, and you lose money, and your insurance rates go up. So next time when you have a big cargo ship going through a pirate infested water, you hire one of these companies and they either have a separate boat that's armed or they put armed people on your vessel to, to shoot and maybe kill uh, pirates who might be boarding your vessel, sort of like the old days. The claim at the moment is that this process of putting PMCs onto the boats has dramatically reduced the amount of piracy off the Gulf of Aden. But at the same time, these shipping companies have a pretty big incentive to not report the attacks to keep their insurance premiums low. How successful do you think these maritime PMC programs have actually been? Well, it's partly true. There's a lot of things that dramatically reduce piracy. So about 10 years ago, some of your listeners will remember there was like this, this blight of pirates off of the coast of Somalia in the Gulf of Aden. Then, you know, and there, there was a huge international uproar against us. The, so like the, there was a conglomeration of multiple states like China, the United States and others, perhaps even Australia, I'm not sure, who sent like a task force. Like, I think it's called Task Force 150 or something like that. That would, you know, chase down these pirates. And, but, you know, but if you think about it, you know, you have these big Navy destroyers trying to chase down pirates who are operating on, you know, uh, you know, rubber rafts, you know, Zodiacs and, and, and rubber rigid speedcraft, you know, Boston whalers. And, and many people in the Navy thought, you know, this is not worth spending millions of dollars making naval destroyers do chase down these pirates. So they quietly, many admirals, if you like in America, if you talk to them, you know, over drinks, they will quietly tell you that, you know, I think it's good for merchant companies to hire embark security, which means putting, you know, these these sort of um, anti-piracy armed guys on, on your vessels. Uh, at the same time, um, the insurance companies also sort of winked, winked, not judged at that. And, and lastly... The international community, the United States and others, um, the five eyes to some extent, that's the intelligence 
um, alliance between the U.S., Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and the U.K., sought to really sort of um, paralyze the pirate system. They were there was a piracy system in Somalia. It wasn't just a bunch of bored fisher guys going out there. They had international financial backing. Uh, there were sort of tycoons in Somalia, I think maybe in Yemen. And they went after those financial guys too. And that's sort of what stopped it as well. They, they sort of interfered or sabotaged the way they get paid. Um, and so there was a, a couple reasons why piracy started to dwindle by 2012. So do you think this really did completely solve the piracy problem or that people just simply aren't reporting the attacks? It's it's a good question. So I, I think it's like, you know, it's like banks. They're not going to report when they've been hacked and, you know, how much money has been stolen by hackers. Uh, it's against their self-interest. And it's really hard to know because just like banks, these shipping companies and insurance companies are pretty sophisticated when it comes to information security and sensitivity. Um, I think it's very likely that you know piracy still continues. It didn't just simply vanish in 2012. I think the the numbers of piracy has gone down. There was like the spike in 2010, 11, and 12, or you know, in in the Gulf of of Aden. But you know, there are other piracies around the world. Um, that that industry, you know, it's one of the oldest industries in the world. So I would be, I don't think we should be too optimistic that the piracy problem has gone away. I think that's likely it has simply been concealed. But it isn't just companies hiring these guys anymore. In the Caribbean, there are various reports of PMCs being hired and used to smuggle drugs for the cartels with their wide range of experience. What have you heard about these reports and how likely do you think they are? Well, you know, anytime there's money involved and there's risk and danger, uh, then that's the type of that's uh, that's a conflict market. And that's what attracts mercenaries, whether it be 3000 years ago, a thousand years ago or today. I mean, I've heard rumors, uh, but I can see the possibility. I'll just say that that drug cartels will start to lean on on the expertise of the industry as well as some of the plausible deniability that they provide because they provide you know one of the the chief selling points of using mercenaries is that if they get caught it's it's more difficult to link their actions back to the client not impossible but more difficult and that's very appealing if you're an illicit economy but i can also see a scenario where the united states might hire privateers which are the same the same people in some ways. Uh, but privateers are basically sea mercenaries that work for a country. And it's not just the big players using the PMCs these days, it's a lot of smaller nations as well. So can you take us through what sort of countries tend to use private military contractors? Well, right now, like a privateer technically is like, I mean, let's go back to like, um, let's go back to the Caribbean, but let's go back to the 1600s or 1500s. So many, everybody remembers Pirates of the Caribbean and Johnny Depp and, and so forth. And, you know, and, and of course we like to, you know, make fun of that, but there's some truth in that. So back in the, you know, 1600s, 1700s, Spain and England, which were superpowers, were vying for the very lucrative sugar trade in the Caribbean. But the problem is that, you know, they would escalate, like they get into an arms race and who can build the most frigates. 
but um, they couldn't match each other and it sort of spun out of control. So what they would both do is they would hire private tiers. These are private warships. Um, and they could be they could come from anywhere. So they could come from, say, Boston or they could come from, you know, uh, you know, Colombia or wherever, uh, Brazil. And they would fly their client's flag, whether that be, for example, Great Britain. And uh, and the deal was this, that the parliament of Great Britain would give that sea captain a letter of mark, which is like a contract. And it says you can go after any Spanish vessel you see. And you should kill it or capture it. And you get to keep um, some or all or of the booty you collect. And we will try to, and you'll be like on team, you know, UK. You know, we'll do, we'll do our best to protect you. And so, th- so both sides would do this. They were basically hiring mercenaries to the sea, but they called them privateers. Now, the problem with private warfare is this, is what happens when the contract is done? What happens when the client goes away? Well, we see on both land land and sea private warfare is that the privateers became pirates. And this created a huge blight of piracy in the Caribbean, hence, you know, pirates in the Caribbean. Um, these were former privateers who went whose letters are marked you know, were revoked because they, you know, they kind of went, you know, the, the client didn't need to hire them anymore. So they became sort of mercenaries of the sea or AKA pirates. Um, and that's, that dynamic has not changed. I, I find it ironic today that this industry may be embryonic in the Caribbean today, not over the sugar trade, but over the drug trade. Well, that leads me to a really interesting hypothetical. If we can hire PMCs to attack private civilians, if we can hire them to attack rival cartels, if we can even hire them to do the dirty work for nation states, what stops a company hiring a PMC to attack a rival company? What is the legal precedent if, let's say, ExxonMobil hires a group of PMCs to attack some BP oil rigs in the sea? Who receives the charges in that case? Would it be the, the likely Colombian PMC who actually carried out the attack? Would it be the company who pays them off, who would be pretty hard to track down and prove where the money came from, as it's definitely going to go through a bunch of shell companies? Would it be the UAE, as the PMC company is likely registered in the United Arab Emirates? What precedent do we have at the moment when it comes to this sort of an issue? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot there. So I think that this scenario is not far-fetched. Um you know, let's let's back up a bit. You know, 40 years ago, if you told somebody, you know, mercenaries would return, you know, and that, you know, they'd laugh at you. 30 years ago, if you said that the United States was going to use, you know, private military companies, some would say mercenaries like Blackwater in its wars, they would laugh at you. Um, you know, 10 years ago, if you said extractive industry was starting to use this new private industry, you know, this private security industry, people laugh at you. But now look at us. We have the extractive industry is starting to lean heavily on the private military industry because, A, they are tired of being shaken down from their point of view by host nation governments. So if you're working in Nigeria with an oil rig, you, you know, of course, that, you know, the, the government of Nigeria is, you know, corrupt and sucking you dry. And you, of course, are in some ways abetting that corruption. Um, you know, and also th- think of this. I mean, the CEO of Nissan, uh, Carlos Goshen, or the ex-CEO and president, 
He was under house arrest in Tokyo for corruption uh, by the Tokyo authorities. And a bunch of mercenaries, former American Green Beret mercenaries, pulled like this perfect CIA paramilitary operation to exfiltrate him from Tokyo to Beirut, where, which has no extradition treaty with Japan. You know, and people, rich people around the world saw him get away with that and are thinking, wow, I could do that too. Or, you know, um, hiring mercenaries to take to, to assassinate the president of Haiti and essentially get away with it. People around the world are starting to wake up to this new tool, if you will. And the extractive industry is one of the early users of this industry, mostly for defense. Um, but you can imagine in a place where the reason is extractive issue is because they have to go where the asset is, whether it be oil or gas or timber or mines. And as they will tell you, and I used to work in this industry, all the easy places have already been extracted, shall we say, you know, all the easy oil places. Now it's, you have to go to the hard places, places like the parts of Central Africa, like uh, the Eastern Congo, which is full of, it's, it's, it's lawless, you know, it's, it's like, it's lawless land. And anytime you have, again, you have uh, no secure, like anarchy, then, you know, great deal of money to be made, and unconstrained political and economic rivalries, you have a market rich for potential for mercenaries. And the last, like I said, the last 20 some years, we've been seeing the, the, the rise and return of mercenaries, both on land and sea. So the idea that in 10 or 20 years from now, yeah, you know, big oil company one rents an army to, to take out big oil company two. I think it's, it's more likely than not. Um, and I think that the idea that states can can um, can govern this, especially in places like middle of Africa or the middle of the Middle East, where, you know, it's lawless for the most part. I think that's that's nonsense. So I think we're going to see a return of private warfare by the middle of the century. Is there any legal precedent actually set about how to deal with this action? Or is it simply when this happens for the first time, no one will know what to do? It's it's unchartered. I mean, there's a lot of legal scholarship, but it's ivory tower scholarship, right? It doesn't touch the earth. I mean, so look look at the case with America, the United States of America in Afghanistan. You know, if and it still wasn't solved. If you have a private military company and one of their um, like, well, first of all, we many of your listeners will remember in 2007 something called Nisor Square. This is uh, an event in Iraq during the Iraq war where uh, a sort of a squad of Blackwater contractors slash mercenaries, you know, killed 17, you know, Iraqi civilians in the middle of downtown Baghdad because they thought they were terrorists. And what happened to them? Did they go to the brig? Did they go to jail? No, they went home. They went home, right? Soldiers were been court-martialed. They went home. Now, years later, they did get um, they did get arrested under a highly politicized and questionable trial. They were sent to jail, and President Trump gave them a full pardon for all four of them. Right? Um, if you fast forward that to recently, if you have a private military company like in Afghanistan or Libya. 
um, you know, what happens? What happens if one of the members, one of the private military members, like completely kills or massacres a family? And let's just say that private military guy is from Colombia. Now, where is that tried? Is that tried in Colombia? Is that is that tried in uh, Libya? Is that tried in wherever the private military company is based, which is probably Dubai? Or is it tried nowhere? The answer is it's tried nowhere. There's so much jurisdictional problems and law enforcement problems that they kind of walk free, right? So that's another, again, they, they mercenaries have a lot of impunity. Um, they exploit that. And it's a, partly a selling point. Um, but if you, again, if, if you fast forward, well, even let them fast forward, let's look at Libya today as a, as a bigger example. Um, now, we've been using, the world has seen mercenaries in the rise for 30 years. The, the international community has very weak and ambiguous laws against mercenaries, despite this. There's no real legal framework. It is both very ambiguous and very constricted at the same time, so it's really hard to prosecute a mercenary case. Um, there's a joke that if your lawyer can't get you out of mercenary charges, you should shoot the lawyer. Um, but even if you had strong international law against mercenaries or against, you know, privateers, who's going to go into Libya, for example, and arrest all the mercenaries there? I mean, the place is swarming with mercenaries. Is the UN going to do it? No, they're not going to do it. Is it going to be NATO? They're not going to do it. You know, and also, even if you found somebody to go in there, your mercenaries can shoot your law enforcement dead. They are very lethal. These are not the caricatures you see out of Hollywood. So, you know, con, you know, mercenaries are the one commodity that can literally resist arrest. Because of this, international law is not equipped to deal with the burgeoning, you know, market for force that has been developing over the last several decades. And it's not going to start doing that in the next five or 10 years either. I think world peace would be easier to hope for than international law on mercenaries that's tight and enforceable. So I think that the trend of mercenaries will only grow. And what about when these mercenaries are captured behind enemy lines? Let's say they're contracted for someone like the Russian government. You know, is it a case where the Russian government will come and bail them out and claim responsibility for them? Or it's, you're a mercenary, sorry, we're not coming back for you. Yes, that's all of the above. So um, part of the job, if you're a mercenary, I mean, let's let's look at the, merc the Colombian mercenaries who are in Haiti who assassinated the president. You know, is the Colombian government going to save them? No. Uh, that's part of the, the job risks when you when you take on the assignment. Um, but there's some other questions which are really interesting, too. So in 2018, um, the Wagner Group, a, a fairly powerful Russian-based military, you know, mercenary group, uh, works for the Kremlin, but they're not all Russians. They're, they're Russian-speaking, but they're not all Russian citizens. They, they, in eastern Syria, they attacked an oil site or a gas site where there was American special forces. I mean, really good ones like Delta Force and Green Berets. And there was a four-hour firefight. Um, now, that night, Americans, you know, killed more Russians in that one night than any night during the entire Cold War. 
But the reason it didn't go to World War III is because the Russians were using mercenaries and both sides could walk away from it with plausible deniability and say, oh, those weren't real soldiers. We can all we can mutually ignore it. So again, mercenaries give you plausible deniability that all sides like to exploit. And Russia didn't care. I mean, and the Russian people didn't care. The, the Russians really do not like it when they see their there are soldiers coming home in body bags, but they don't care about dead contractors or dead mercenaries. Um, something Putin is very savvy to. Now, one I talked to one of the Green Berets who was there that night, and he told me what happened. And one of the questions that they didn't know the answer to was, "What happens if we catch one of these guys? They are what they're under the laws of war. How do we treat them?" Do we have to, you know, treat them like prisoners of war? Do we have, and we still don't know because the laws of armed conflict are still really stuck in the 20th century. They're not updated to modern warfare. Uh, and there's no provision for mercenaries and laws of war in the 20th century, at least not none that's, that's very clear. Um, so we, we're on a new legal frontier here as people, as mercenaries grow, both in their potential and their scope and what they can do, especially when you hire them to do things you don't want to do to get your hands dirty. Uh, what happens if you catch them? How do you know who they're really working for? They may not know who they're really working for. And how do you maintain accountability? These are all all open questions maybe not in theory but in practice these aren't just dudes with rifles anymore pmc companies now have access to drones and rockets and even in some cases submarines are pmc's becoming better armed these days does it indicate they're going to be going into hairier and hairier operations they're really good i mean they're not pmc's are no threat to a place like australia but they are a threat to places that australia might care about um, and, you know, in the hands, you know, uh, if you think about who their clients are, they're super rich, whether they're countries like the UAE or they're, uh, they're companies or they're just they're, they're like the CEO of, of Nissan. Um, and they can do I mean, the mercenary world. Think of it this way. Um, they well, they think it's like a, it's like a big pyramid, okay? Just like any industry, I suppose. At the bottom, which is most, we call those tier three guys. They're not very good. They're they're like former, you know, regular infantry guys. They can do guarding. They could do guard duty, right? They can defend oil pipelines and and uh, stuff like that. In the middle are tier two. They're slightly better. They can do some offensive things. And tier one is like special operations, sort of paramilitary stuff. Um, and they are, they can be very effective. They can do, um, and they're all of them. And some of these companies can be very clever and how, um, you know, bang for the buck, if you will. I mean, small arms are easy to get. And now that the U.S. has left Afghanistan and abandoned a lot of, weapons in Afghanistan, you should expect to see that on the black markets sometime in the weeks ahead. Um, they can also are very good at jury rigging, jury rigging things. So they can take an off the shelf drone and turn it into a kamikaze for like a small kamikaze air force. 
Um, they can take rubber, you know, these these fast boats that you see, you know, SBS and SEALs use, um, and they can wield them for great effect. Um, we, we, at least in the United States, are so accustomed that unless the weapon system costs like $100 billion, it's useless, which is totally not true. They, these um, folks, like good private sector innovators, can do more with less, and they do do more with less. And when you have them working in, you know, they're not going to places like Western Europe or North America. They're going to fragile, conflict-ridden places where uh, it just takes a little nudge to move to move the the sort of the, the piece on a game board. So if you look at like you know again like Libya or Central Africa, you know Central African Republic or parts of the Middle East or even Afghanistan day. You don't need to have a huge military to get results. You just need to to be cunning and clever about where you where you where the pressure points are, and you can use uh, mercenaries in combination with disinformation, in combination with cyber attacks, to to do some very effective things. And that's why we should not underestimate. You know, oh, it's just a bunch of guys with Kalashnikovs. That's not true. They have a lot of sophisticated weaponry, and they're also deploying it in new and cunning ways. Um, and so that's that's really the threat. The other theater we'll probably do a full piece on later on is PMCs in cyberspace. Now, it sounds very far-fetched, but you can take us through how this works. Privatized force and you know is not just limited to kinetic force on the ground, whether it be over land or over water. We're seeing an increase of cyber mercenaries. Um, some are like hackback companies. These are private hackers who will, if your company is attacked, they will go after whoever, they will find and attack whoever hacked you, right? And they've been around for 10 or so years. They're very controversial. They can't save what's been hacked, but they can, they can uh, kick butt. And that, in theory, is supposed to deter other hackers. So if you've some hackers, whether the private sector or the Russian or Chinese, and they see two companies are going to hack, and one has a hackback company behind it, they're not likely to go after. It's a hardened target. Um, so hackback companies have are are illegal in places like the United States of America, but the Fortune 500 is increasingly looking at them. Because, you know, the U.S. government is not defending them. And they're saying, like, well, okay, America, if you're not going to defend me, then we have to defend ourselves. And so they're turning, some of them are turning to hackback companies. But it's actually more scary than that. So it's, it's also, there are, there are companies, there are people, and there are governments who are also hiring, like, straight up, mercenaries of the cyber world. So recently in 2021, there were three, uh, they were former hackers for the US's National Security Agency, which is like the, the secret, uh, like that's America's like offensive secret uh, hacking reserve, if you will. Um, they're, they're kind of like that one foot in the military and one foot in something else. Uh, and they do a lot of, uh, of America's offensive hacking for them. And three of these guys that, that we know of have been secretly working for the UAE. And, and you're thinking, like, that's interesting. 
But isn't, like, if you're an American, isn't the UAE, the United Arab Emirates, aren't they an ally of America? And the answer is not really. So it's funny when it comes to physical warfare, like in the, the Persian Gulf, the UAE and America are pretty closely aligned in terms of, of, you know, Navy and warships and land forces. But when it comes to cyber, the UAE is not a friend of the United States. And we have to start to get more nuanced in how we think about this because, you know, wars, war takes place in several domains, not just land and sea, but also in, you know, space and cyberspace. And the, the fact that the UAE was hiring some of America's best hackers and using them against America shows you what a marketplace for force, how it actually functions. And it's not just land warfare or sea warfare. It's now cyber war too. And the reason why this is so important is because, look, the barriers of entry into the cyber world is much lower than in, uh, you know, you know, land warfare or, or sea warfare. You don't, you know, yes, you have to get the skills, but you need the skills also if you're going to be a Green Beret or a Navy SEAL or something like that too. But you don't need to have all the kit, you know, and you can travel and nobody can arrest you because of doing, you're doing illicit arms trade for your stuff. Um, so, you know, I don't know, maybe we, do we gonna, are we going to have some sort of licensing regime now where, you know, armed and dangerous hackers have to, you know, be on, on a list like uh, well-known special operators? I don't know, but we're seeing a world where private warfare and conflict and competition, whatever you want to call it, is no longer terrestrially bound. It's now in places like cyberspace. And who could be your friend on the earth may be your enemy in cyberspace. And that's going to be a new twist for modern warfare and the alliance systems. War is changing. The clean work and parades are being done by the national armies. And the dirty work is increasingly being done by PMCs. In the West, we may see the difference between soldiers misbehaving and private companies and go, well, it's a private company. But to people in Africa, that distinction may not be so obvious. To people living in places like the Central African Republic, they see firsthand that these well-armed foreigners come in, they shoot civilians left and right, they take the resources, and then they send it back home. No flags, just guns. So how did it get this way? How did PMCs become the pointy end of the spear in the darkest corners of the world? When we answer that, we turn to our second guest. Part 2. From Russia with guns. So over the past decade, we've seen Russian PMCs really expand, both in terms of how many countries they're operating in and also where those countries are. So a, a decade ago... Back in 2010, 2011, uh, we had PMCs only in one or two countries. We started to see an increase after 2014 uh, with the Russian PMCs being deployed to a Ukraine. And since 2015, we've seen a roughly sevenfold increase in the number of countries where Russian PMCs are operating, going from about four countries in 2015 uh, to 27 now today in 2021. And this is based on open source analysis. This is where we have concrete proof of them. But we have also 
seen different rumors of PMCs operating in other countries, so the true number may be even higher than 27. Not only has the number of countries that they're operating in increased, they've also spread uh, further abroad just in terms of locations. We now have them operating on at least four continents, and particularly in the last few years, we've really seen an expansion uh, further out of area in places like Sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America, where uh, PMCs had not been operating in such force earlier in the decade. Katrina Doxy is an expert in counterterrorism and irregular warfare at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. She's the Associate Director for the CSIS Transnational Threats Department and sits on the editorial board for the Irregular Warfare Initiative. She joins us today. So something that we're seeing with Russian PMCs such as Wagner, where although they are the connection to the state is deniable, particularly since PMCs are technically illegal in Russia. They're working in accordance with broader political agreements that the Kremlin is pursuing with different states. So we've seen this especially as Moscow pursues a series of different uh, security cooperation agreements and other foreign policy agreements with partners in Africa, including some of their recent foreign policy convenings that include a lot of the governments in sub-Saharan Africa. One particular uh, example where we see this blending of uh, diplomatic or even UN-sanctioned activities with the deployment of PMCs is in the Central African Republic, where we see that uh, Russia has made a deal with uh, the Central African Republic uh, to offer uh, weapons and equipment and security support services that was actually, uh, they were granted a waiver by the United Nations to do so. Um, But in the course of providing this equipment and providing uh, what they're calling civilian trainers to actually train the local forces, the many, many or all of the civilian trainers who are going in are actually being drawn from PMCs like the Wagner Group. Uh, to accomplish this task. And we've actually seen with the most recent UN reporting that in addition to just offering training services and other uh, combat support tasks, we actually now have reports of Russian PMCs independently conducting combat tasks, not even integrated with local forces, but leading their own combat tasks and including combat missions that have resulted in widespread human rights abuses and deaths of civilians. We did an entire piece about 18 months back on who the Wagner Group are and why they are so important to this story. So feel free to pause this, go back and listen to that, and come back here. But if you're happy with just a quick summary, the Wagner Group are a Russian private military company run by St. Petersburg hot dog salesman Yevgeny Prigozhin. The group has been very active in Crimea, Yemen, Libya, the Central African Republic, South America, and the Sahel, as well as many other theatres. And unlike regular PMCs, Wagner is very close to the Russian government, with Wagner's leadership regularly sitting in high-level meetings with the Kremlin defense officials. Wagner even trains right next to where the Russian special forces train. Wagner are quickly becoming the pointy end of the Russian stick, being shoved into the hairiest situations Russia has at the moment and give the Kremlin plausible deniability when it comes to crimes. The other oddity about the Wagner Group is that unlike someone like Executive Outcomes, a private military company out of South Africa, Wagner takes its orders almost solely from the Kremlin. They don't act like a private military company who simply take jobs from the highest bidder. 
Wagner have been operating very heavily at the moment out of the Central African Republic, extracting resources and killing numerous African citizens in the process. These operators are technically just civilians on either a working visa or a tourist visa in the Central African Republic. So how is this not a crime? How is it fine for them to be shooting civilians out in the open? It's complicated in that it's all wrapped up in this broader conflict that's going on in the state. And I think that that's one of the reasons that PMCs, particularly those that are focused on combat tasks, uh, really benefit from these arrangements with states that have weak governance, that are facing uh, strong security threats, ongoing conflicts that they can integrate in. And much of this is done under the guise of the the course of warfare. So it certainly is important that uh, this is being monitored, that the UN is coming out with these reports. They had um, one report earlier on in March 2021 with some allegations of human rights abuses, but then most recently in the June 2021 uh, UN Security Council report, there were there was pretty damning evidence of widespread human rights abuses uh, conducted by Russian PMC forces in the country that, frankly, demand more of an international response. But with poor uh, local governance, weak uh, local enforcement systems, there's not a lot that is able to be done on the ground, particularly when the activities of these groups are sanctioned by the ruling government. I think it's also important to note, uh, especially in a country like the Central African Republic, that not only do we see these growing concerns around human rights abuses in the course of uh, leading these different assaults on villages and in the course of, um, you know, attacks where they've indiscriminately targeted citizens, but we've actually seen ongoing uh, human rights abuses and crimes against local populations even just in the course of setting up training camps and local basing in the country. So it's long been reported in local Central African media that the villages uh, that are adjacent to or nearby uh, different Wagner Group training camps have uh, been reporting that there have been crimes against villagers, including the abduction and rape of women in those villages. So this has been an ongoing problem in these areas and one that thankfully now is getting some attention, but I think really demands more uh, international attention and response, particularly when the Russian forces were initially able to go into the country due to a UN waiver that permitted it. PMCs more and more are taking on full combat roles rather than just security roles in various theatres around the world. You know, we've seen Russian PMCs on the front lines of Libya, Syrian PMCs in Nagorno-Karabakh, Emirati PMCs in Yemen. So why are people looking to PMCs to act as the shock troops in these conflicts? Uh, these PMC deployments have often come on the heels of other uh, foreign policy and security cooperation agreements. But some of it also is just a matter of making the lowest bid or the most attractive bid. And so one case where we saw this, and we actually saw this backfire, was in Mozambique, where the Wagner Group uh, won the contract to be able to assist the local government with combating the Islamist insurgency in Cabo Delgado, the country's northernmost province, largely because it underbid its rivals. And there's been a lot of analysis on this that it's kind of a mix in these cases of Uh, the Wagner Group or other Russian PMCs offering their services at a lower price 
and also this lure of improved relationships with Moscow, because there is this understanding that even though it's more more of a hidden connection, there is still this sort of wink, wink, nudge, nudge understanding that they are connected to Moscow. Um, so in Mozambique, in Cabo Delgado, Wagner was able to get the contract over other competitors um, that uh, such as Umbra Aviation, such as OAM, that have a lot more experience in the region. And ultimately, you know, we kind of saw that the, the local government uh, got what they paid for in that Wagner was not prepared to fight in the local conditions. And they, you know, in addition to not being prepared to fight in the in the brush, they were not even able to fully integrate with the local forces due to language barriers, due to cultural differences, and just lack of preparation for the combat tasks at hand. So why is Russia willing to do it at such a cheap price then? Are they getting kickbacks somewhere else? Is there something we're not seeing? So some of it is um, certainly kind of being funneled back through this series of shell companies, particularly when you're looking at something like Wagner that is connected back to Prigozhin. Uh, you see this series of different shell companies that operate back to kick back some profits to uh, different Russian oligarchs. But you also see, you know, in addition to um, whatever monetary deal might be made, there are often other deals related to natural resources that are baked into that initial PMC agreement. So uh, as I mentioned earlier, we, we've really seen this trend where Russian PMCs are pursuing these relationships in particular with uh, states that have weak governance, ongoing security challenges, and rich natural resources. And this is something that kind of makes the African deployments and uh, to some extent some in other regions such as Latin America distinct, which is this strong economic component, because it's not just a matter of being paid to send soldiers in to fight a conflict or to train local forces. A big part of it is also uh, getting mining concessions or um, different deals to access local energy resources. So for instance, in Mozambique, a big emphasis was on starting to uh, prospect for the natural gas resources that had been recently discovered offshore um, and to build in some of those economic benefits uh, as well as any monetary sum that was being paid. Similarly, in some of the other countries we've seen them deployed to, there have been different mining concessions around gold, around gems, around chromium and other natural resources. And now tied into these Wagner operations are the Russian forces. You know, is Russia assisting them in transportation or resupplying or refueling, or is this just a completely separate operation just conducted by Wagner? So the exact connection back to the Kremlin is a little bit murky, although we do have in a, a lot of different cases, different hints of cooperation with different Russian intelligence services, um, including the GRU and FSB. But in terms of the actual weapon shipments. We see uh, planes coming in to drop off these weapons. We've seen satellite imagery tracking some of this, particularly in Libya. There's been a lot available, including some imagery that's been released by AFRICOM. But 
Across all of these, we see these shipments coming in and often PMCs helping to accommodate um, the deliveries, helping to unload planes. But the quality of these shipments has also been fairly mixed. So certainly in a lot of these cases, having weapons and equipment come in has been a huge boon to the local conflict. But we also see some kind of anecdotal stories coming up out of some of these places where what's being sent is maybe not quite up to par. Yeah, so for, for example, we have local reporting in the Central African Republic that in October 2020, there was a shipment of 10 BRDM-2 armored vehicles that uh, was sent into the airport in the capital. And this was intended to be sort of a, a large display of the power of Russian equipment coming in to uh, help protect the country. This also sort of fits in with some of the broader information operations and propaganda that the PMCs were supporting in support of the relationship with Moscow and with the Russians that were there for assistance. So they paraded these armor vehicles through the city. They had uh, Russian diplomats who were um, in the city there to view this. The president was there to view this. And yet for all of the pomp and circumstance around this, one of the tanks broke down immediately after it exited the AN-124 uh, that they were delivered on. And then two more broke down as they drove through the city um, as part of this supposedly celebratory parade. And so uh, there have actually been local sources writing opinion articles about this and really flagging the fact that, you know, some of these weapon deliveries are trying, they're trying to sell them to the population as, oh, look at these, these great powerful weapons and equipment that we're getting from our Russian partners. But then you look at it and it's breaking down in the middle of this big ceremonial event. And there's this growing sense in some quarters of, okay, but they're giving us the leftovers. They're giving us these used uh, vehicles that don't even work right. And so there's definitely this, this mix in quality that also has sort of a corresponding effect on how the Russian partnership is perceived by the local population. Apart from the Central African Republic and Mozambique, where else might we find Wagner operating at the moment? So in addition to the example of the Central African Republic, of course, they were in Mozambique. They actually left Mozambique in 2020 after a, a series of profound failures. Um, so they are, as far as we can tell, no longer operating in Mozambique. But we also have taken a look at pretty robust case studies in places like Sudan, um, where uh, they've now sort of reduced their role uh, under the transition government, but are still very much present. So in Sudan, uh, you once again had Russian PMCs performing uh, different paramilitary tasks, helping to train local forces, providing intelligence. Um, they got these mining concessions for gold mines and were providing subsequent security services, both at the mines and also to individuals in the government. And there's been this interesting shift in the country since the transition government took over, where some of the troops that had been in Sudan have actually redeployed to the Central African Republic now that there is a bit less demand for their services. 
but they've also been ramping up some of their information operations. They actually had pursued a deal to get basing rights um, at Port Sudan on the Red Sea, which was actually an agreement that was um, originally part of the deal with Bashir when they originally went to Sudan, um, but that was continued with the transition government and has now been put on hold due to uh, increasingly warm relations between the U.S. and Sudan. Um, but Russia is trying to still push its way in there, still get some uh, information operations out to the people really in favor of Russian presence um, at the port and in the country in general. So we see that activity ongoing. We've also seen them uh, participating pretty robustly in Madagascar, where initially uh, Wagner Group contractors were deployed in 2018 to assist with the presidential election in exchange for some different contracts uh, related to port renovation, uh, as well as more um, access to mining, including chromium, magnesium, and gold. Outside of those countries where uh, we've sort of done deep case uh, study deep dives, we also see them operating in places like the DRC, uh, Botswana, Zimbabwe, uh, Nigeria, Congo, in Chad, in Nigeria. Uh, most recently, um, in the news, we've seen a, a focus on a potential deployment of Wagner to Mali, where we had previously had some reports of presence, but now um, there's ongoing discussion over more formal deployment to Mali and assistance there. Um, there's also a lot of uh, concern in places like Guinea, where we've seen uh, recent coups and transition governments coming in, that this is, again, this perfect storm for PMC activities and it's very possible that we're going to see those activities ramping up. So Russia is taking over the security for a number of the destabilized African states. Surely, though, if you're the leader of one of these countries, you'd be pretty worried about putting your security in the hands of another country who often stands to benefit from the instability in yours. If it's Russian mercenaries who provide security, surely they can either prevent or allow coups to take place to whatever benefits Moscow most. In these countries where Russia is using PMCs, it doesn't really have much of an incentive to try to ensure long-term, stable, good governance. Russian PMCs flourish most in countries where you have weak governance that is dependent on them. So there's been uh, some analysis of this already looking at countries like the Central African Republic and confronting the fact that while Russian PMCs are deployed there ostensibly to provide security assistance and to put an end to conflict, the PMCs have no incentive to actually do their job well enough to end the conflict because then they're out of a job, then the deal is over. And so to some extent in these countries, if you think about the incentives that Russian PMCs are working with and that Moscow has, there's this incentive to do their job well enough that they're not going to be kicked out and replaced like they were in a place like Mozambique, but to still allow some kind of low-level instability, some kind of ongoing weakness that necessitates ongoing dependence on the PMCs and then, in the larger scope, this ongoing dependence on Moscow. This is a legal powder keg waiting to happen as countries get more and more brazen about the use of PMCs. So far, the major powers do see the advantage in having a force you can use to go in and do your dirty work that if caught, you can simply deny knowing anything about. 
and every side knows that once you prosecute these guys, it opens up a Pandora's box of not only current crimes, but past crimes in any number of these countries. Everyone is too invested to simply stop using PMCs. But what happens when one player goes too far? What happens when a private company goes to war with another private company? The incentive's right there. Knock out one oil rig of your competitor, and that's millions taken away from them, as well as the added millions of you selling more to meet the demand. So what happens when, not if, when this kind of scenario unfolds? Who is legally responsible? Well, for that, we turn to our third guest. Part three, corporate retreat. Well, mercenary is outlawed, which means uh, under international law, you're not allowed to become a mercenary. Obviously, the stipulations in international law on in the mercenary, anti-mercenary convention are kind of specific. So you need to tick every of these, I think it's eight uh, different attributes that need to be qualified and in order for you to become a mercenary. And uh, so unless they are being, and if one of them is not qualified, then you are, you're actually not a mercenary. So it is, it's very difficult to actually attribute someone and make someone a, a mercenary under international law. But it's fairly specific in the way that you are an individual who's in it for individual gain uh, rather than commercial gain. Um, you are, you know, you're not working for a company or a registered entity that is can be held to account anywhere, whether in the contracting country or in the operating country. Uh, and you're doing it, uh, you know, you're not a member of this particular country, whether you know, you're not you're not a member of, of you're not part of that conflict. You're an external party to that, and you're you're basically doing it for private gain. If you're a private military contractor, you're a as the by, by you know by definition you're a contractor. You have a contract with a company. That company is registered somewhere. This company can be held to account. You're not operating for private individual gain, but you're doing this for business gain um, and, and and business profit. And the business, in order to generate profit, will have to uh, uh, adhere to certain laws and regulations. And obviously, the most important element in terms of differentiation, but also that has become a kind of a blurry line. But 10 years ago, the, the main uh, distinction was that if you're a mercenary, you're involved in direct combat. While if you're a private military and security contractor, you're, you're, you're providing security services which are defensive in nature. And if they are armed, then you, you're ever only going to use lethal force when uh, as a, a means of last resort in a very much in a defensive um, manner to protect a client or protect whatever it is that you need to protect, while a mercenary is understood to be actually actively engaged in warfighting. Andreas Krieg is an Associate Professor of Strategic Studies at King's College in London, a professor at the UK Defence Academy, a fellow at King's Middle East, CEO of Amina Analytica, and author of Surrogate Warfare, all about the issues of PMCs. We are thrilled to have him on the show today. So you mentioned Wagner Group before, uh, it's, it's one of these case studies, but I think the most transformational event for me has been the hiring of Reflex uh, Limited in the UAE uh, by Abu Dhabi in 2011 in the, in the wake of, of the Arab Spring, where Abu Dhabi was building a mercenary force, um, and I'm saying here mercenary force, um, because they were supposed to actually use lethal force in a, in a, in a proactive and offensive manner, uh, initially only domestically against potential uprisings, and then later on also exp in, in an expeditionary function, because they were used in Yemen uh, and Somalia as well. And the UAE have really changed the, the approach to mercenarism 
um, also in, around the Horn of Africa, in particular in Yemen, uh, because they were actively involved in, and are still actively involved in war fighting, have also been used in Libya. Um, and um, I think that has been transformational because they use the term private military company because these are companies that are registered in Abu Dhabi or in the UAE um, as companies and they hire contractors to work for these companies. So they're not loose individuals of the type that we had in the in the 1970s, which we would call the dogs of war. But these are contractors who work for companies. But obviously, the UAE law is is a, is is an entirely different one to to Western countries. The regulations are very different, so they are actually involved in direct war fighting, and so they've kind of eroded some of or undermined some of that um, distinction that we would have made ten years ago, because they 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 pose as contractors when in in reality they're probably more mercenaries. When you speak to people who are pro PMCs, they'll tell you that. Piracy has been all but solved by private military companies working out of the Horn of Africa. Do you think they're right to say that? Or frankly, it's not true and piracy is still a problem in this region of the world? There's a, there's, there, you know, there are a lot of elements to that question. I think undoubtedly, if you speak to people who've been involved also on the military side of, of counter-piracy and anti-piracy in, 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 around the Horn of Africa, they will tell you that the private security industry had a, a very crucial role to play. I mean, the dying down of attacks, um, and you know, it's been a lot safer to to actually passage through these areas now than it has been uh, eight years ago. And that's definitely due to the fact that private security companies have acted as a deterrent uh, in a way that private, uh, in the way that regular militaries and and conventional navies were were not able to do it. And I remember the head of NATO. The NATO operation um, uh, or EU operation Atalanta, um, he said once, you know, the comparison is if you look at the air, how vast the area was and if you look at how many platforms they had, it would be like patrolling uh, the whole of France with two police cars. Uh, so, you know, this was always something that required teams on board of vessels and vessel protection teams um, had did make a difference. And because these were commercial commercial. Um, commercial platforms, these these vessels, they needed to have a commercial answer to what was essentially a commercial issue. So, you know, the navies had a role to play in this, but it was absolutely crucial to have private companies providing that service uh, and also making vessels safer and also acting as a deterrent. Uh, I think that was an absolutely crucial uh, element to this. Obviously, there are instances where shipping companies were scared of, you know, premiums going up from uh, insurance companies, and that's why they didn't report potential issues and incidents. Uh, but incidents have gone down anyway. I mean, it, by, by any metric, uh, you know, if you look at the research being done also by insurance companies, they will tell you the same thing, that how important it was to actually have contractors on board. So I, I would say that contractors played a very, very crucial role and are continuing to play a crucial role, actually, in, in West Africa, if you look at the Gulf of Guinea. And there's been a bit of a race to the bottom here where especially, you know, shipping companies are trying to cut corners uh, and operating with uh, companies that are not very uh, credible and haven't been able to provide the same level of service. And, and that somewhat tarnishes the reputation of the entire industry. But I think for the most part, uh, people now realize in government, in, 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 you know, in the UK and in the US as well, are realizing that private security companies, uh, when they are operating as registered companies in the UK or in the US, they provide a certain level of service, there's self-regulation in place, there are certain standards in place that ensure that, uh, you know, that, that this is a fairly safe and, and, and very good uh, a means of providing a service that is essentially needed. Um, and, you know, whatever happens in the third world by companies that are locally registered is a, is a different story. Even in the world of PMCs, Russian maritime PMCs have been known to be particularly brutal, knowing that their legal position is 
pretty dubious. There's been multiple accounts of Russians posting footage online of simply machine-gunning Somali vessels as soon as they come into view, killing everyone aboard. But what is the legal precedent around this? Is there anyone that can charge the Russians with this, or is it frankly international waters on a very, very delinquent Somali government court system? Uh, yeah, that's the, the key issue with maritime, private maritime security has been from the beginning that it is a bit of a grey zone legally. Uh, obviously, when you have a private contractor operating in a on land, it's quite clear that, you know, in which jurisdiction, it's not quite clear, but it's fairly clear in which jurisdiction that individual is. There, obviously, there have been all kinds of issues in Iraq and Afghanistan where um, there were arrangements by uh, the US government with the Iraqi government or Afghan government to give them uh, to give contractors amnesty at times, which was obviously also problematic. Um, but you know, at least you had you had someone to prosecute. You you kind of knew what laws would apply. Um, now, when you're in a in the if you look at the shipping sector, and that is generally the shipping sector is very diversified, is a very international transnational um, uh, domain, um, and it becomes increasingly problematic when you have contractors on board. So. You have a flag state that might be state, state number one that might be different from the state of ownership of that vessel. Um, uh, so the company that owns the vessel might not be this might not be registered and is most likely not registered in the same uh, country as the flag state. Uh, at the same time, the the contractor might be from a different nationality and working for a private security company that again is registered in an, another country, uh, and then they are operating potentially in coastal areas uh, of other states, uh, whether it's Somalia or Yemen, and then you have the, 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 the another state involved, which is the, the, the coastal state. Um, and then you, so you're already now we're at five or six different countries potentially being involved in an incident like that. So if it happens on international, in international waters, um, then, you know, the international, the, the laws of the sea apply, uh, which again, are not very specific on this. Uh, it's usually down to the flag state uh, if something happens. Um, but Obviously, it's very difficult to prosecute, and we had a lot of instances, um, by the way, not just involving contractors, but also involving uh, vessel protection teams, which were provided by states. Um, there's a very infamous case, or there was an infamous case in 2012 by a, uh, an Italian vessel protection team, which were actually law enforcement, Italian law enforcement on an Italian flagged um, vessel that were in Indian coastal waters, and they opened fire at a a fishing vessel, which was Indian, killing uh, two of the, the fishermen on board. And that caused a huge outcry because obviously the Indian Navy then uh, seized that ship and arrested these, uh, these Italian, um, this Italian vessel protection team. And it, it kind of created a very long-lasting diplomatic feud between the countries because they didn't know, you know whose jurisdiction it was. But the Indians said it's, it happened in our coastal waters, so Indian law applies. And if you use armed force, you will be trialed under under Indian law. Now, the issue in Somalia or Yemen is there is really no state to prosecute. There's also no, no real Coast Guard or, uh, or Navy that could actually enforce the laws of Yemen or Somalia or any of the coastal states. Uh, and, and that kind of creates a wild, wild west situation where you can get away with murder. Um, and when these things are not reported, because Somalis that are being shot at or killed... Uh, you know, if there is a survivor, where would they go to actually ask for uh, reparations uh, or to actually how who are they going to sue and how they're going to do it? And that has created this um, kind of a gray zone, which uh, allows companies to do to get away with murder. And it is therefore um, based on, you know, regulations that that companies adhere to and uh, best management uh, practices that are being enforced by most 
of the Western-based companies. But you know, if you're talking about a Russian company, um, they will obviously they will say we only adhere and we only uh, fall under Russian law, and they do get amnesty under Russian law, um, and basically they do get away with murder. And there's literally nothing that could be done. And anyway, who would uh, start an investigation in an incident like that? Who is going to trigger that? Um, because those people who have uh, you know, have suffered the damage, have nowhere to go to actually uh, to to claim the damage or to prosecute that particular vessel. So it is it is problematic. So usually it's down to the flag state of 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 that particular vessel um, because they're the ones you know they're the territory, the only territory and in international uh, waters that um, that um, that is that that is relevant. But um, usually these vessel states, uh, these uh, flag state countries that are based. Uh, you know, Panama and, you know, countries in the Caribbean, small islands, where, which are tax havens, essentially, also don't have the infrastructure to prosecute and, and, and bring uh, any, any uh, pressure to bear on those, um, on those, um, on those companies um, who operate the vessels. So it is kind of a gray area, and it's, that's obviously a highly problematic element of it. Can you take us to the issue of floating armories? So most companies were not allowed to actually bring armed uh, protection teams on board in where you know when uh, when they were leaving port because you know they, they the, the the port countries would not allow this. So what happens is that you have these contractors going on board of vessels uh, without arms and then being armed on international waters where you had floating vessels with which were basically armories supplying the contractors on inter, in international waters with. Uh, with with arms so that they can legally operate in um, you know as as armed contractors and then as soon as they would go back to port they would either throw and that, that happened a lot throw the arms overboard in international waters or have another of these floating armories coming around and picking up the arms before they disembark the vessel um, it kind of shows you that whatever happens in international waters is kind of an unregulated uh, and there are loads of issues that arose with floating armories getting into into coastal waters of states and that was seen as smuggling arms um, one of these cases i remember was was in indian coastal waters where the indian coast guard was seizing one of these floating armories that by mistake went into indian waters and then was seized as and i think from what i remember this this case has also been going on for years the contractors have have been uh, imprisoned and they, they're still in prison as far as I know. Um, but it also again goes to show that there are ways around it. Uh, uh, so if there, are, if there are regulations on land or even in coastal waters, when it comes to international waters, this is kind of the wild, wild west. And um, you can get away with quite a lot, uh, particularly when you don't know who the client is or if the client is actually based in a, com in a country where there is no legal infrastructure to go after them. Do you think PMCs have reached their peak or do you think we'll start to see them being used in far more complicated operations, possibly even state-to-state -state fighting or company-to-company -company fighting? What do you think the future for PMCs holds? I think the future is, is, is wide open in, in a way that there is a lot more opportunity. Uh, you know, my book on surrogate warfare really talks about how we are moving into a world where the assemblage between state and non-state actor is becoming the new norm. We do, you know, state... Capacities and capabilities are shrinking. Uh, 
Um, we see less and less investments into militaries in the United States, maybe not as much as in, in Europe, but we see in Europe a downsizing of the military. And that's a trend that's been going on ever since the, the end of the Cold War. Um, it's capacities and capabilities that I think are lost and I don't think will be uh, reinvented. And that obviously creates at the same time, you know, we also need to understand that the 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 challenges in that complex 21st century security environment are increasing and they become a lot more diverse than the challenges that we were up against even 20 years ago. So a lot more non-state activity, a lot, a lot less security um, available uh, by, you know, by local government. You have a lot more failing states that are unable to provide or unwilling to provide security. So what, what, what it creates is a massive gap. So on the one hand, you have a lot more challenges. And on the other hand, you have a lot less um, um, a lot less capacity to actually deal with it in-house as states go. So what what you're left with is with a is, is a void of capacity and capability, and the industry is eventually going to and it has whenever it, it was called upon was able to kind of fill that uh, capacity capability gap um, and providing services mostly in conjunction with state authorities. So I'm not saying that the industry is working against the state. It's, I think it's the idea is working with the state. And as we as surrogacy goes, so my idea about surrogacy is everything is about externalizing the burden of warfare, creating assemblages that between the state that is declined and a network of different actors that are operating somewhat directly or indirectly for the client state. And private security companies are one element of one, one such surrogate that states can operate with and operate and, and operate and, and do operate with. And I do see that uh, the readiness to use them will be will increase. The future of military and security operation is private and is non-state. Whether this is commercial or not is a different question. This issue is nowhere near being solved. With companies becoming more and more brazen, who knows what may lay ahead for the geopolitical landscape because of PMCs. Will the US simply hire PMCs to take back the Spratly Islands in the South China Sea? Will Russia just hire Wagner to invade Latvia and then claim they had nothing to do with it? What is the precedent? In 2014, when Russia took Crimea, they managed to solidify themselves on the ground and run the vote before the world could even figure out what to possibly charge Russia with. We need to figure out an answer to these legal questions now. We need to roadmap out this grey zone once and for all, before more boundaries get pushed and other players are forced to respond. Thank you so much for everybody who tuned into the show this week. It's been another big month here at The Red Line for us, with us taking on even bigger topics, heading towards our 150th guest, our 55th episode, and even more content and analysis coming out on our website. If you want to hear more about these events or get involved or jump on one of our pub quiz or Hearts of Iron games, you can find links and info on our Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, Facebook, and Discord on the handle at the Red Line Pod. Or if you're keen to follow me on Twitter, I'm in the handle MikeHilliardOz. Oz is in Australia. Otherwise, visit our website www.theredlinepodcast.com. As a small token of our appreciation, we're also reading out our latest Patreon's name to sign up as of time recording. So a big thanks goes out to Ronbo, who just pentupled his Patreon contribution. This show would not be possible without the support of amazing Patreons like Ronbo, who donate a small amount of money each week to help us keep this show going. I really cannot thank all of our Patreons nearly enough for their support, and if you feel like you could spare a couple of dollars, we'd greatly appreciate it. 
So forever on our website though, this episode is dedicated to Rombo. As usual, here are our three book recommendations if you want to take this subject further. The first is The New Rules of War by Sean McFate, an analysis on how the industry has unfolded over the last few decades. The second is Surrogate Warfare by Andreas Krieg for an analysis on the legalities and the rules around private warfare. And the last is Blackwater by Jeremy Scahill for a look at where all of this originally came from with Blackwater's war crimes in Iran and Afghanistan. I want to thank our guests this week, Sean McFate, Katrina Doxy, and Andreas Krieg. All of you were absolutely fantastic this week, and we look forward to having you back on the show soon. I also want to thank my staff, Owen Swift, the producer, Daniela Zavella and Perry Grace, our research assistants and writers, Mark Spencer, our second voiceover artist, Joe Hawthorne, our audio cleaner, Marissa Rafter, our videographer, and Nick Much, our field correspondent. All of you are absolutely amazing, and each and every week you blow me out of the water with all your work. So I'm incredibly proud of this team and all the goals we're kicking. The last thanks goes out to you for tuning into the show. 55 episodes is a lot of content, and some of you have been here since the very start. And to those people, I give my absolute biggest thank you. The show will be back in another fortnight with another international episode. But until then, thank you, and good night. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are solely those of Michael, our guests, and the Redline podcast. They do not represent any government or organization and are solely our own. For more information, please visit theredlinepodcast.com. The Climactic Collective. This show is produced by Hear Media, a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H E R E. Media.studio. Media.